When things get darkest, we must be our brightest. We must love our hardest. You're listening to Better, and I'm your host, Mark Brand. I deeply believe that everyone has the power to leave the planet a better place than they found it. In my decades of frontline work, I've seen it happen against all odds in the toughest corners of the world. This show was created as a guide to share stories of resilience and hope from the brightest individuals who have overcome challenges we all face to help us all envision and build a better life. Every week, my incredible guests and I will give you access to the conversations we've been having behind closed doors, away from stages, and away from traditional media. Until now, we share this space with the explicit intention to empower you to be your biggest, brightest, most beautiful self, so we can build a better world together. Welcome to Better. I am so grateful and equally hopeful. Every time I see Dr. Sylvia Earle's face, I think about the work that has gone into educating all of us on the oceans. Five years ago, I got to spend a few days with Sylvia in the mountains of Montana. And if you do not know, somehow, if you've been living really deep in the ocean and you don't already know Sylvia, she's a world-renowned oceanographer, a marine biologist, a National Geographic explorer residence, and affectionately known by fellow scientists and peers alike as her deepness. She's logged over 7,000 hours underwater exploring our oceans. And what struck me most when I first met Sylvia was her ability to contextualize, but also deeply touch my spirit when we talked about the oceans. Sylvia, welcome and thank you. I'm really pleased to be on board. Good to see you again. It's wonderful to see you as well. So let's, let's start with where it starts. What is the first time you experience the biggest part of our world underwater? What happens? What leads you there? And what, what's the moment like under the water? My first recollection of the ocean is when I was about three years old and the family took a short vacation on the Jersey Shore. And I remember hearing the ocean before I could see it. Ooh. And there's a certain aroma about the ocean. I thought it was wonderful. I could smell the ocean. I could hear the ocean. And finally, I could see the ocean as we walked over the, the dunes. And there it was. It was just, just unbelievable, all that water, as far as I could see. And next, of course, was taking the step into the ocean. But what I really remember is turning my back on the ocean and getting knocked over by a wave. <laughs> my mother might have just pulled me out of the ocean and said, "You, that's a dangerous place. But when I could touch bottom with my toes, I remember being able to breathe again. And I guess I had a big smile on my face because my mom let me go back in, and I've been going back in ever since. The theme throughout this, of course, I want to, the curiosity of it is critical to people's understanding of the ocean. And without their understanding, we're in dire straits. So I'd just like to set that tone right off the top that my right. awareness increased 10x from meeting you. And as a lifelong chef and cook, as a lifelong purveyor of food, and of course, enjoyer of it. My perception changed deeply when we spent those, those days together. 
and also about the air that I breathe. So would mm. you mind sharing with us when you say forest, what you're referring to? I think what we now know in the 21st century that was not even knowable when I was a child, what Earth looks like from space, that life occurs from the surface of the ocean to the deepest places, that in all of the universe, as far as we know, this is the only place where life prospers. It certainly is the only place where there are elephants and whales and trees there may be life elsewhere, probably some form of life does exist beyond our atmosphere, but this is our home. We are of the earth, we are of the ocean. Our DNA, we now understand, is formed with a recipe, a chemistry that is shared with all other forms of, of life unique to earth. Never before could we know what is now known. Never again will there be a better chance to take this exceptional opportunity to secure an enduring place for ourselves in a universe that's really not very friendly. Yeah, critically so. And I think, you know, as we continue to have this conversation about what's possible, the lens that you also provided for me was one of hope consistently. And in a knowing, often we get to the place of fear. And never once in our conversations have I ever felt fear. I have felt this knowledge that we have been gifted with is a space for us to act. And we must with that knowledge and understanding, but truly from a place of compassion. And so one of the things that really struck me as well was what we breathe, the oxygen we breathe. The narrative is... The forests above ground provide the oxygen that we breathe and we need to be mindful of them. But we don't talk about the kelp forests and what the oxygen and the air that we breathe, what is the ocean is responsible for there. Can you break that down for us a little bit? Somewhere along the way, as microbial life began to change rocks and water into something, a word that everybody should keeping their vocabulary, it's the biogeochemical miracle that has made Earth habitable for us. Mm-hmm. Photosynthesis, the conversion of carbon dioxide and water into food, basically sugar, and oxygen as a byproduct. Earth's early atmosphere was much like today's atmosphere of Mars, that is mostly carbon dioxide and some methane, but it took, has taken hundreds of millions of years to convert a mostly carbon dioxide, methane-laced atmosphere that was part of our history on Earth to what we now have, 20% oxygen, about 79% nitrogen, and just a trace, enough carbon dioxide to keep the photosynthetic motor running, basically. We need some carbon dioxide to power photosynthesis and to create a, a layer between us and the rest of the universe that is of the right temperature. A, 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 sort of a blanket up there in the sky of the gases that hold 
heat instead of letting all the heat escape into the atmosphere. But it's finding the balance. Too much heat is not a good thing for us. Too little is not a good thing for us. There have been phases in Earth's history where Earth has been really much colder overall. The height of the most recent phase of of significant cooling was about 20,000 years ago. We've been coming out of that gradually ever since. I mean, there are these grand Earth processes, these cycles that are governed by the tilt of the Earth, by the activity on the sun, by forces beyond human influence. But what's new is how we have become a having an impact that truly is of geological uh, consequence of magnitude that since when the, about the past 200 years when we began significantly burning coal and oil and gas releasing into the atmosphere an unusually strong, large amount of carbon dioxide and methane and nitrous oxide, greenhouse gases that have served to hold the heat more than usual. Now, before humans came along, there have been warmer times and cooler times, but what is now we're witnessing is our power to change the nature of nature through our actions, through what we're doing, we are are driving an accelerated time of warming faster than would be taking place over what would be a normal stately geological pace that under the usual circumstances enables the life on earth to accommodate the changes, gradual shifts, Right. This is a swift so, change, and and so it's impacting us. Right. So instead of us moving at this natural place, thank you so much for painting that larger picture of this is what the balance got to over hundreds of millions of years, and in our short two hundred year, right? And it's the ocean. It's mostly the ocean. Folks, you are here on Better with Dr. Sylvia Earle. It is my honor to have her here with me. You keep that dial locked right in we're going to come straight back and then continue this lesson that will bring us into what the oceans have to play in this part our impact on them our dramatic impact on them and how we can govern ourselves better to ensure that we have more longevity in this particular phase stay tuned Welcome back to Better. I um, I am furiously taking notes over here, scribbling away, and I've got to spend so much time already with Sylvia that this is. I just get excited that these messages get to come across in a way of such deep wisdom, but also the ability to paint this picture for us so that we can understand where we've come from, where we currently are, and where it's possible for us to go. So where we just left off was the impact that fossil fuels have been making on our planet. And you were about to talk to us about the impact that it's made on the ocean and we've made on the ocean. So what does that look like in current day? 
it's a two-way street. How okay. we affect the ocean, how the ocean really affects us. Uh, no ocean, no life. It's the water as a starting point. All life requires water. Uh, the poet W.H. Auden said that many have lived without love, none without water. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not just humans. All life right. requires water. And most of Earth's water is ocean, 97%. It should be no surprise to understand that most of life on Earth is ocean life. It's populated from the surface to the greatest depths and even where water trickles down beneath the bottom of the ocean into the cracks in the rocks. Life occurs as much as two kilometers down. And it's not a very friendly place, but there are certain bacteria and even certain um, nematode worms that have been discovered thriving or at least surviving beneath the bottom of the ocean and above in, in the water column, it's surprising. Well, maybe it shouldn't be surprising that that's where the history of life is, is written in the lives of the creatures that are there. The greatest diversity, the greatest abundance of life is ocean life. We're newcomers and we're also in the, in the minority <laughs> as humans, but we have power. Right. That is exceptional because of what we're putting into the atmosphere, what we're putting into the ocean, what we're doing to the land, distributing toxins and converting the fabric of life that has taken all preceding history to develop in, in 10,000 years, but mostly in the last 200 years and especially the last 50 years as our numbers have greatly accelerated from a billion in 1800 to 2 billion when I arrived, 4 billion in the 1980s. Now, almost, we're getting close to 8 billion individuals. Each of us will needs we have to breathe we have to eat we need a place and we have occupied now so much of what was the fabric of life that maintained earth as our life support system generating oxygen capturing carbon out of the atmosphere carbon dioxide and the the flow of energy from the photosynthesizers to all of the animals. We, it'd be nice to be able to photosynthesize. We could be sort of self-contained, but no, <laughs> as animals, we have to consume our neighbors, the plants and animals, and even the microbes and fungi are part of the network of life. It is our life support system. Lucky us, for the first time in all of history, we are able to look at Earth as a system. Oh, there are lots of things we don't know, but we know more than we've ever known before. We can see how energy flows and how oxygen is generated, how what we are doing to our life support system, the air, the ocean, the water, the fresh water, that 3% that is mostly tied up in polar ice, but 
nonetheless, fresh water important to our existence. And I think most critically, appreciation for the natural, this network of give and take that mm -hmm. makes the chemistry, the biogeochemistry of the planet sustained in a way that favors us and how we, through what we have taken out of the ocean, what we've taken, how we've ripped to shreds that fabric of life on land, now doing the same to the ocean by taking in excess of a hundred million tons of ocean wildlife and destroying the ocean systems without really understanding why it matters until right about now. So that losing about half of the kelp forests, about half of the coral reefs, the seagrass meadows, the coastal marshes, through our actions, either physically destroying them or by changing the chemistry through taking so much life out of the ocean, altering right. the give and take of nutrients put back into the system by every animal. <laughs> they eat, but they also put nutrients back into the system, whether it's mm -hmm. birds flying over the landscape, eating and putting nutrients back as they, as they digest the food and put nutrients back, or the fish in the ocean, or the whales. And we humans are the only ones who have not really successfully, at least civilized humans, of, of understanding that, that, that give and take. In nature, there is no waste. We're the only ones who compartmentalize the, <laughs> our, our existence and create waste as a problem instead of um, part of what makes the world go round. We've created systems that actually generate versus push through. And I mean, everything that you've said, the word mycelial network just continues to come up for me, right? The symbiosis of all life. And that was right. another one of the things that you struck me with when, you know, I first saw you speak. And one of the things that we got to work on was your project, Mission Blue. And Mission Blue is going to take up the entire next segment. If it doesn't take up the entire next two segments, because... <laughs> We've painted the picture and then see the picture can be scary. I'm sure there's listeners at home going, oh my God, we're so terrible. And it's like, yeah, we didn't know what we didn't know. And yes, there have been some bad actors in the system, some really bad actors that have extracted, intentionally ignored science, ignored all of the signs and said, well, this isn't in my lifetime, so therefore I do not care. But we have changed societally to say we need to protect generations. Like that language started from my memory, right? Like what happens for future generations? How do we build? Which is, of course, the way that indigenous peoples have lived all over the world forever in symbiosis. And so we've just taken and just warped and twisted everything for our own needs. But the good news is we're so powerful, we can turn it back. So we've got about a minute and a half left in this segment. Do you want to give us the top view so we can get excited about Mission Blue and what it specifically does, Sylvia? Mission Blue was started about a decade ago with the idea that giving back, protecting the wild, focus on the ocean, but it certainly 
resonates globally throughout land and sea. Mm. Understanding that the more we can secure protection for the natural systems that are still in pretty good shape and restore what we can, finding a place for ourselves within the natural systems that, that make our survival, let alone our prosperity, possible. Love that. And so we're going to talk about hope spots, which I love the language of so much, and I've had the honor of visiting across our five oceans. And then one of the things that Sylvia always says, which I love, is, first of all, we've only explored 5% of the ocean. So when we talk about all this, like we still have 95%-ish of it to explore. And then curiosity has always been a big center point of your teachings. And I think one of the things that you said to me was, uh, or just on, in my awareness was, I can never be, imagine being bored. There's just so much to explore and not enough time to do it. And I'm thinking about how much you're literally a National Geographic explorer and how much you've explored. And that still rings true for you. And that resonates so deeply with me. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners, we are on better with my friend Sylvia Earl. I'm so excited to have this time with you. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Better. We are here today with Dr. Sylvia Earl. And if I even began to read the accolades, first of all, she would cut me off because that's not what it's about. But it's so long and it's really so well-deserved. 7,000 hours in the ocean, exploring it, the connection to it. One of my favorite things you say, we are all sea creatures. We all depend on the ocean. Absolutely, we do. And absolutely, we are. And then we're moving into this part of what this show does is create tools for people. And I'm talking about if you're in rural Ontario or the Midwest or you are in Australia and you're trying to figure out how you can be a value to this system versus feeling hopeless. And that's why we like to talk about the hope spots, which are part of Mission Blues. Um, mission, which are to protect and restore the blue heart of the planet. So can you talk about 10 years ago, Mission Blue was founded, and then what has happened since, and how are these hope spots showing us what's possible? Well, the original concept when we began Mission Blue was to identify the obvious places that you could not argue with should be protected. The Galapagos okay. Islands. The, the waters off the Patagonian shelf, polar regions that have a magnified impact on climate and so many other places that we just identified about a dozen. And, and that was a starting place. And it was coincident with when Google launched the ocean in Google Earth. And we were working with the Googlers to portray not just the surface of the ocean, but the configuration of the ocean floor, uh, working with the databases that had not yet been incorporated to show the, what the bottom of the ocean actually looks like. And with National Geographic um, updating their seafloor maps, all this happened actually in, in a launch that took place in 2010 with a book that I wrote uh, with National Geographic, an atlas of the ocean. And so 
since then we've we've relied on champions, communities, people who've nominated places that they know and love and are willing to make a commitment. We're working with Esri, the Earth uh, Environmental Systems Research Institute, with GIS technologies, so that each of the areas that are now designated as a hope spot have a story map where you can put images and, and information and share it across the the whole network of hope spots, a network of hope, if you will. Mm-hmm. And we are looking and, and receiving more applications from um, champions who want to continue adding to the inventory and make commitments. And when we, uh, you can go to the Mission Blue website, submit an application, it goes to a volunteer group of scientists, our, our Hope Spot Council. We work very closely with IUCN, International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Those applications are reviewed, suggestions are made about what, what might be done to strengthen uh, the, the commitments. And, and we're building, uh, again, a way to give back to the champions to help them to secure better protection. And the goal is, the real goal is to work with not just our network of champions, but with more than 200 partners to help go from where we now are, about 3% of the ocean protected, to 30% land and sea, 30% by 2030. More than 70 nations are now stepping up to really achieve this ambitious but really vital goal of giving back to nature, giving back to ourselves. Our life support system is in trouble. This is the this is what we can do. It's what everyone can do, even in your backyard, to convert whatever you've got in your community or your if you have a lawn or something of the sort. Consider turning it into something that is more bird and bee and butterfly friendly. Mm. And if you have influence over um, over some coastal region, work with your community. Think about what we're putting into the ocean, what we're taking out of the ocean. That if we change our approach to the ocean, can restore health and be better for us in the bargain. Absolutely, it can. And we've got to witness a lot of those turns and changes. But what I love about what you build and what you've always said is it's so in step with where we need to be, which is this is cross community, cross the world. It requires everybody's attention. It's not a, I built an organization and top down, we are going to raise billions of dollars to do this work. It's like, we need you to be the gatekeepers of these spaces. We need you to be the protectors of these oceans. And by you, we mean we're talking to you. If you're yes. listening right now, like it's, it's, it's not the, power. <laughs> right? Not the proverbial you, it's, it's you. Like you actually have to be in action here. And I, you know, one of our conversations in Montana, we're sitting down, you said, Mark, what, um, what kind of food do you cook and what do you have? And I was listing off my businesses and one of them was a sushi restaurant. And you didn't, you didn't judge me or arc up. What you did is you turned to face me and you said, fish are friends. 
And I'll, I, as long as I live, I'm never going to forget that moment because we actually changed our menu at that particular space when I got back. And I still consume fish. I consume line caught fish and I work with MSC and with other seafood protectors and producers who are local populations who are still, that's part of their way of life. But my intake dramatically reduced and my manufacture and selling of it also dramatically reduced because of my understandings that you shared with me, particularly around tuna populations. When you talk to me about the endangerment of actual fish stocks and populations, which I thought I was educated on. I got to be real honest with you. I thought I knew what I was talking about and I definitely didn't. I had the highlights to continue to justify my behavior. That's what I had. That was the highlight reel I was, I was drawing from. But as we go to the next segment, we've got a few minutes here. Can you talk to us about fish stocks, the overfishing? Well, I'm not going to talk about fish stocks because that's, that demeans us. We should okay. talk about fish. Okay. As, as wildlife. Please. They're not products. They're not commodities, although we mm. treat them that way. Right. We don't take birds by the ton unless we're talking about chickens. Wild birds, we respect. We didn't always respect them. We used to think of them as like four and 20 blackbirds baked in a pie. Right. <laughs> you know, wild birds, songbirds, whatever they were, were just game. They're, they're there for us to take. Right. We need to think differently about fish. They are the birds of the sea. Mm. It's time to think of them as wild life to be respected for more than just something to eat. I love that. I love that frame as well. And language is so important. So when we come back, we're going to talk about two things. I want to continue that conversation because the Fisher Friends comment, that is a much deeper analysis of, and I love that because we commodify everything. You're absolutely correct. In the capitalist structures that we've created, everything is a commodity versus respecting the life form that it is. And so I love that. And we're also going to talk about, so just so you folks have some scope, Silvio's penned over 150 publications like a hundred one five zero publications in her Actually, time. More like two five zero. <laughs> is it two fifty now? My God, I can't keep up with you. It's it's fifty hope spots. It's hundred and fifty. We don't talk for a couple of years and things explode. So two hundred and fifty plus publications, but one that's really important is the National Geographic Ocean Book, a global odyssey. Uh, talking about the evolution, beauty, and impact of our ocean, the challenges we face from climate change, plastic, and overfishing, and the myriad of ways that we can help to protect it is how it's been described. So can't wait to come back and talk about it. You're on better. I'm your host, Mark Brand, and we are with my dear friend, Sylvia Earle. Stay locked. let me set the stage for you folks at home. Welcome back to Better. We are in the mountains of Montana. Sylvia delivers a beautiful keynote amongst the network that I am part of called Hatch with Dear Friends. And one of my roles within that organization is to run the labs. And the labs are around people who are doing incredible work and galvanizing that work with other superstars who work. And particularly in the lab we did with Sylvia, media, communications, like really storytelling, filmmakers, etc., and what we did around Mission Blue was create a campaign that went viral specifically to talk about people's experiences with the oceans, but not just people, our youth. 
and to create over a thousand of those videos for World Oceans Day, which then launched. And that storytelling is so critically important. So as we finish the last segment, you say 250 publications. The only way we learn really truly is by hearing, seeing, feeling, touching, but being emotionally struck, which is one of your deep skill sets. So in this book that's coming, The Global Odyssey, what is captured? What happens? What was the real, like the tip of the spear for you in this particular book? The heavy lifting in terms of writing this ocean, uh, a global odyssey, took place in 2020 when I wasn't doing any traveling except vicariously. Mm. (laughs) And it, it gave me the opportunity to catch up on what what has been learned we're learning more faster in this decade than during any time in history it's partly because there're more of us we have access to the sea and to the skies above ways to share information uh, i said when the book was finally sent off to press that we'd have to start right away doing the next edition because new information was coming up that <laughs> didn't have time to get into the book you know, right. every day. You know, it's, oh, I didn't know that. Or, wow, that's really exciting. And so it's an ongoing process. You almost need a digital format so you can keep updating, updating. But Consistently. We want to see Sylvia Earle on TikTok daily giving us updates. That's, is that coming next? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it... It really is exciting, and and anybody can do it. That's the great thing, uh, Mm. to go online and actually to go out and see for yourself what's in the ocean, but armed with background information so you have more of a qualitative way of looking at the creatures of the sea than has ever been possible before, to know who those jellies are knowing that everyone is unique, like every human. All individual creatures have have differences. I mean, it's a big idea, but, but it's only right about now that we've been able to even understand that each creature, every bird, every fish, every snail, every lobster, every shrimp, you know, each one is one of a kind, like you are one of a kind. Mr. Rogers used to say to kids, you're special. There's no one in the world who's ever been like you or ever will be. You are special. Well, every form of life is too. Knowing that gives you a different way of looking at one another. Everyone has power. And the real key is facing up to it. And yes, I mean, we've talked about how it may seem overwhelming in the 21st century, how many problems there are. What can any one person do? Well, no one person can do everything that needs to be done to turn from decline to recovery. But everybody has something that is special. Look in the mirror. What is it about you that makes you you? Do you have an artistic bend? Are you good with numbers? Are you good with kids? Are you good with animals? What is it that sets you apart that that you look in the mirror and say, there I am, who am I, and what is my power? 
and to realize 21st century humans, that means you, I, we, no more than ever has been possible to know. The 10-year-olds of today know what no kid could know, no grown-up could know when I was a child, what Earth looks like from space, that we're all made up of, of things that we call DNA and RNA, that we are changing the planet through our influence unwittingly we have gotten to a kind of a bad place but yeah. now we know let's go let's yeah. work together use your power combined with others and we're going to get there because we know what to do yeah i i know i know how i'm feeling in this moment and this is this is exactly why i wanted to have you here is that we can hold both truths we're in a rough spot it's dire but we have more power, more knowledge than we've ever had. And we know what to do with it. Or we need to know what to do with it, rather. And so I'm, this has been tremendously helpful. I, I just have this, like, this image of young Sylvia Earle with a quote-unquote borrowed copper helmet at the bottom of this <laughs> river being investigated by friends, all individual friends, that has led you on this journey. So as you say, you have to look yourself in the mirror and find this power. When did you find your power? When did it, when did you say to yourself, I'm going to be underwater for another, you know, 6,999 hours? <laughs> well, that was never anticipated. You just go one step at a time. That's how okay. everybody, you know, you never know what tomorrow is going to be or even the rest of today. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> So you just take it as it comes and keep going. But I think I acquired as a child something that is that every child has, but often it gets it, it, it gets modified because we of the adults around us who guide us based on their perception of, of life. My mother had great empathy, compassion for life, for humans, for us as kids, my brothers and me. We knew that we were, that somebody was always there looking after us for our well-being, which gave me great strength. I knew somebody cared. And that she had a way with all creatures, <laughs> large and small. She was the bird lady who took injured animals and, and brought them back to health and yeah. wild animals that were le released back to the wild under her care. And that empathy that kids and curiosity that kids have, we, we teach kids to kill. We teach them and we encourage, we reward kids. I mean, with the idea that it's all right, you get celebrated for catching the biggest fish or killing the biggest animal. That's not natural. That's learned. We need to rethink our relationship with nature and with one another. Yeah. Oof. There's so much there. There's so much to talk about. And we talk about it in the sector, obviously, you know, my work around homelessness and poverty and, and really the systems that continue to perpetuate that violence, which is also a choice that is learned and taught. And we work with children so often who are between five years old and 12 years old who come to the neighborhoods that I work in and they see 
this abject poverty that's been enforced, and they cannot comprehend why. There is no understanding or comprehension because they are, we're built as such empathetic beings and loving and caring beings that without all of the taught narratives of you must look out for self first, you are a consumer, you are all of these things, like the world is out to get you, animals are scary, the oceans are scary, everything is scary, none of which is true. And unfortunately, because of that, and we perpetuate in group circles, this is where we end up. Folks, if you are listening on the radio right now, we just got warmed up. And we have a couple more minutes with Sylvia before she has to run to a plane. This has been better. We're going to be on the podcast for a few more minutes wherever you consume that, whether it's iHeart or Spotify or Apple Music. I always appreciate your attention and support. Sylvia, thank you so much for being here and sharing your wisdom. And I really hope that you'll come back and join us soon. Count me in. I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) I love you. Thank you. (laughs) Hey, folks, you've been on Better. I'm your host, Mark Brand. As always, it is my honor to hold these spaces. Now you've tuned into the podcast. You are you are listening to the extended innings with Dr. Sylvia Earle. And we've just scratched the surface on childhood and youth and hers in particular. And what I want to reflect there is what parenthood and good leadership from the people around us and what we need to do and the responsibility that we have to teach the next generations the things that we learned and what we learned wrong. By example, Convey empathy. You know, yes. it's written into all of the great religions. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You could say that about birds, about fish, about about life, wherever life exists. Put yourself in their place and imagine and see through the eyes of others and then behave, you know, the way... You wish to be treated, behave toward them. So how do we convey this further? Because we've all heard that and it doesn't align with the actions. Like often the words that come from whatever these teachings may be, right? All of them. Imagine you're a fish. Okay. I'd love to do that. Can we do that right now? Empathize. Yeah. Just you're there in the ocean. You, you, You experience day and night underwater. And if you go deeply into the ocean, that is below about a thousand feet, 300 meters or so, it's dark all of the time. Most of life on earth lives in the dark all of the time. And, and it's a big idea, a big thought. It's cold, it's dark, but it's life and you're happy with life in the dark and the cold. It's your, that's your world. Try to imagine that you're a bird. And you get around with your wings. Imagine if you have a broken wing and, and you can't fly. I mean, it's, that's the way my mother had this empathy for creatures and was a healer. We need to heal a relationship with nature and with one another. We should not really embark on this attitude of we must conquer, we must, we must kill actually we need to think differently absolutely we do and i think about my aunt diane who is a cook and a chef and just an incredible woman who's my mentor and my mom's side of the family came from poverty she was as you describe your mother the same god forbid 
forbid we rolled by a pigeon with a broken wing or a cat that did not have a collar or I mean the house looked like Dr. Doolittle's home you know there was just consistent <laughs> consistent animals everywhere getting all kinds of names and there was no money but she always found a way to look after beings but she also treated humans the exact same way so if we were walking down the street like I knew that she would be short but she would always be able to dig and find that extra two dollars or five dollars and hand it to another individual I am the person I am based on watching and being close to the understanding that that is what we're here for. But without it, I think of my other influences, I'm not, right? It's, it's really that fragile. And I think we forget our own impact on other people and how important it is. So I think one of the lessons from today that I'm definitely taking away is to remember that every interaction is critical to somebody else's understanding and to, to be truly empathetic beings and walk that way. And so as, as people who consume other life, I'm being very careful with my words here. <laughs> I don't, don't need another stern lesson this morning. What, what is our responsibility, Sylvia? Well, we don't photosynthesize, so you know we have to eat something. Okay. And today, what we consume is having a major impact on climate, yes. the space that we occupy to grow things, whether they're plants or animals, but the impact of growing animals to eat or taking wild animals from the sea is much greater and contributes much more now with close to 8 billion of us. It's a new day, a new time for planet Earth because one species has taken over so much of, of the land and so much of the ocean to foster our needs and our desires. Mm -hmm. So we have to eat something. We have choices, though, about what to eat. We should do a much better job than we have historically of making plants really delicious so that people want and are encouraged to take plants as a of, and, and already we do. When you think of how many calories do we consume, the great majority, on the order of 80%, come from plant-based sources. Mm -hmm. But it's that 20%, the rest, that has a magnified impact growing animals to eat, whether it's chickens or pigs or cows or goats or sheep. It, it has a magnified impact based on that consumption. And then wildlife from the ocean, top predators you think a couple of pounds of plants will make a pound of chicken in less than a year, but it takes tens of thousands of pounds of phytoplankton going through long and twisted food chains to make a single pound of a bluefin tuna. Right. And you don't really take them until they're on the order of eight or nine or 10 years old because they're too small. We take the grown-ups, and it takes at least 10 years for a bluefin tuna to reach maturity. For cod, it's about six years. And some creatures, like orange roughy, that was never on anyone's menu until late in the 20th century, they take at least 25 years just to mature, and they may stick around for more than 150 years when they are taken out of the sea to appear on your plate for, what, a 30-minute dinner? And, and then this huge investment that goes through these long food chains to take an old fish 
that when you take it out of the system leaves leaves a space like cutting down a tree that doesn't come back like overnight I mean, cultivating plants and animals is better than taking wild animals wild birds or or wild fish because of the cost to the environment the cost to your life support system some people and i give really understand they get a break basically the the people who have not just traditions but needs that they're reliant on the ocean or reliant on wild animals from forests for their sustenance it's not just their culture they really need to eat something they don't have the choices that people in chicago and and new york and sydney and hong kong where we take food from places that uh, where we have choices mm-hmm. but many do not they are more in harmony but even taking some always means that we're taking a bite out of our life support system the question is looking at your menu and your health the health of the planet it all kind of ties together what are the choices you can make that are more planet friendly and more friendly to your personal health we now understand that that toxins accumulate in animals especially wild animals that have been around for many years yes they just keep accumulating they call it bioaccumulation sometimes it happens with farmed animals the bioaccumulation of the antibiotics that have been delivered to them to maintain their health while they're alive but that continues on and accumulates ultimately in those who consume them that means those of us who who eat the animals and wildlife from the sea you really don't know where they've been swimming or what they've been eating or what space out of in the ecosystem you have <laughs> have have opened up because you've taken these old creatures away from their tightly knit communities i mean there are things that we didn't think about because we didn't know that now we need to understand if we are to get from where we are to a better place what what bite are you taking out of the world and what are you consuming that is not only perhaps not as good for you as other choices might be and certainly have a big footprint in terms of what we're doing to the earth itself all of that is so critically important and beautiful to understand. And it's, when it's we not, not not just what what you're eating, think about who is this anyway? Right. <laughs> who are you, right. big fish, on my plate? <laughs> what right. what was it like to be a little fish dancing around in the ocean, and and really a miracle that you survived all of the odds that were a part of your life yeah. that ultimately. You arrived here on my plate. <laughs> what a journey to have been a creature in the ocean, a wild animal that had to face the the perils of whatever it is to get to be a big old fish. Yeah. So our disregard for the life lived, 
the community left behind, the impact on the overall ecosystem just for a meal is is where we where we are landing in the synthesis of this particular part. But also what gets me most excited about this too. Sustainability is a gigantic conversation, but I'm also big on physical and mental health. And so my diet is 90 plus percent plant-based. That's by choice because I have a lot of medical conditions that it also makes sense for. But the second I started to eat that way, my mind, my clear clarity and my whole internal makeup, of course, I had like a removal of an addiction. The same thing when I got sober is like I craved that thing and the habit of that thing and how it made me feel, although it wasn't positive and it was false. It was a false disassociation that was created with it. Food does the exact same thing. Those sugars, those fats, the like overwhelming feelings from those things that are created as comfort is a false comfort. And it actually, yeah, it slows us down. It muddies us up. It keeps us in a system. It does all of the things. I don't want to get too crazy about the political side of all of it, but there is a reasoning behind what we're being marketed to and as. And so when we get clear of that, we become so much more powerful, as you've been saying this whole time, and we're able to see crystal clear what we're actually doing. And so I'm, you know, my encouragement here from this episode is, you know, very much to try it. I'm not saying change your whole life on a dime. I'm just saying, give it a shot. You know, when we say you try exercise for 10 days, you're going to feel better. There's no, I mean, it's not, it's not up for debate. You just do. And when you start to eat a different diet, now thinking about what Sylvia has shared with us of the impact, having empathy for those systems, for those creatures, for the creatures that are symbiotically all made of the same stuff we are. And our friend Michelle Thaler would say, stardust, scientifically true, (laughs) all right? So we need to be conscious. And as we are conscious, we also feel our own brain, our own heart fill up more because we respect our own integrity and the way we walk with these systems more. And it's so, it's so beautiful. And I can't thank you enough. And I'm listening to your alarms going off, knowing there's a car coming from you because you have to go to the airport and I'm simultaneously so bummed. So you have to come back and see us soon should have empathy for yourself what you what you put into your body think about <laughs> where did it come from mm-hmm. i mean truly we eat so many things uh, without consciously wondering what is this anyway uh, how did it how did it come to my plate <laughs> right and, and be nice to yourself i mean be good to yourself have some compassion for your own existence. I, I I may feel like answering and being like, I will, I promise. But I hope that everybody else who's listening feels the same way. Folks, this has been better with my dear friend, Dr. Sylvia Earle. I can't thank you yet again enough for spending your time and sharing your wisdom with myself and the audience. My love for you is so big. And I'm so excited about the new book. And I can't wait to have you come back and join us soon. I look forward to coming back on board anytime. Excellent. You travel safely. We need to bubble wrap Sylvia Earle. She's a national and international treasure. Folks, you've been on better. I am your host, Mark Brand. As always, I learned so much. I hope you've done the same. All of the links to Sylvia's newest book and all of her work will be in our socials. And make sure to follow closely as she helps us understand to be more empathetic with others and ourselves. Take great care.